Good morning. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Uh, with me today is one of my regular panel, Julian Rabbit Murdoch. Good morning. Julian, thanks for uh, putting up with us here at your house. I love recording when it's actually in my house. I just roll out of bed, get some coffee, and I'm ready to go. It makes it easier for me, too, because when, you know, I fuck up as badly as I fucked up this week. Well, actually, no, it's not my fault. I blame, uh, I'll blame all of you guys for not playing <laughs> Scourge of War. And, uh, a much-promised Civil War episode. You know, I'm going to stop promising that. Okay? <laughs> like, it's going to happen what's going to happen. Uh, it turns out it's very hard to schedule things with brain surgeons who are traveling to universities across the country to give lectures. We are also joined by our old friend and formerly of Hasbro, now president of Ironwall Games, Rob Davio. Good morning. Rob, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. So, sort of apropos of some of the things that we've been discussing this weekend as we talk about, you know, your your new game company and some of the uh, challenges you're undertaking as you try to, you know, plan your first games and design your first games is, is something is, you know, clearly, you know, sort of on your mind is, you know, issues of manufacturing and components. And it's also been something that's occurred to me with some of the games I've been playing lately, like Elemental, where... What, you know, to what degree do like game enhancements, game components contribute to our overall enjoyment and perception of a game? And so, I kind of wanted to, you know, just sort of start off with you. You know, what what's your approach to like component quality? What are some of the trade offs that you know you're concerned about when you're you know conceiving of how a board game is going to work, or, or even theme? Yeah, I mean, well, it's interesting. For 14 years, I was playing with uh, Hasbro's money, right? But they they kept a very big watch on it you know it's like part of my job as a game designer was not only make the game fun but also what are the components you know what are the pieces what are the plastics and you run cost after cost after cost to make it profitable so a big part of my job was how it was manifested um now i'm playing with my money (laughs) (laughs) and i'm still months uh at least away from making these hard decisions and i have the experience and i know the connections in in hong kong and actually the Hasbro manufacturing plant right near my house still um, is thinking about opening up and publishing games for anyone. Oh, cool. Right. So I can just drive down the street and might not have to deal with Hong Kong. But <laughs> um, it's a very real thing. I mean, a game is a flowchart, but no one opens up a box and is like, oh, math, let's play it. <laughs> this is awesome, right? Like, you got to cover all of your math in this fantasy. And that's where the sort of the components and the manufacturing comes in. And it's both. As Julian mentioned, the theme, what's the story around this? But also, how thick is that cardboard? Or that's really cool. Or Well, and and when it goes horribly wrong, or when it's not done with a lot of thought, you end up with, I mean, one of the big disses on, like, Reiner Knizia games is often, you know, math with graphics, right? The, the, the components and the theme are so thin that it would almost be better to just be abstract. And then... Sometimes that's okay, right? Sometimes you take a game and you let it be abstract, and that can be really great too. But if if you don't even design the components well for that, and I'm thinking of a game like Ingenious, right, which is a purely abstract pattern matching game, but the components are actually kind of nice and cool and fun to play with, and they all interlock, and it, it you know it's okay for that to be an abstract game. If they'd made that game about you know farming, are we it, farming, it, trading, or building? Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean. I think you're conflating a little bit components and theme, right? Because to me, they're interdependent. You can have a gorgeous abstract game made out of all wood, and like right. clearly there's a lot of love. You can also have a heavily themed game with just paper-thin components and, you know, sort of like people weren't really thinking about what the pieces were. It's like, why is this a oval piece? And, you know, just whatever they that happened to available. find. That was available. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There was, they had too many of those. They got them cheap. 
you know, something I was just thinking about, actually, is, like, you know, I look at a game like chess, actually, and all the efforts to sort of, you know, all the interest there's always been in sort of, like, creating these theme sets uh, of chess. But I kind of feel like, in some ways, chess's abstraction uh, has sort of become, you know, almost like a theme unto itself, if that makes sense. Like, at this point, there's something really, like, compelling about the Staunton chess set, right? Where, like, you know, this is a game of chess. And it's, in some ways, it almost seems like I'm just totally in the weeds here, aren't I? <laughs> you guys no, are no, 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 no. You guys at me like, have you lost your fucking mind? Bro? No, no, no. I, I actually think there's this whole part of board gaming, which is all about taking your fairly abstract game and gussying it the hell up. I mean, Agricola is a classic example. Like, in that game, ships, and you've got... 37 different colors of cubes and round circles and i mean it's it's just blisteringly abstract and they're nice pieces they're all wood you know yay uh but you know anybody who's really serious about that game has ponied up for the animeeple set so that you actually end up with little white sheep as opposed to little white cubes representing sheep and you know i don't know why but it actually does make the game more fun it does and i know that some people are doing that with uh lords of Waterdeep. Yeah. Instead of having the cubes for the different classes, you can get these little meeple fighters and wizards. And to me, that really does add more to the game. If those had been people, then you look at the game and you go, okay, I'm going to get people and put them here. Like, it, it helps the narrative. It helps you understand the game. Um, but, you know, they, they wanted, I think, to go with the, like, the sort of the Euro game, like, classic cubes, which I personally don't understand the fascination with a cube. You know, it's like, well, I mean, what else are you going to use to keep track of a thing? Well, I mean, I get it like on a scoring track or something right. like that. But there are a lot of people who are really into Euro games love like the abstractness of the pieces that represent different things in different games. I see. It drives me crazy. I mean, it's the reason that I have problems with games like Dominant Species. Right? There's so much, so many different colors of cubes. I'm to heck with the fact I'm colorblind. There's so many different colors of cubes going on and things that those mean and little arcane symbols representing different stuff. Dominant Species actually is a really good example because that's a game where actually, you know, the, the use of theme there is really strong. Uh, you know, if you look at if you look at the board and dominant species, that you know it's this evolution war game almost, right? Where it's but it's also a worker placement game. So you're, you know, who's going to evolve the best in you know each era of uh, species development? But so the the theme is really there in the mechanics and you know everything you're doing. But I do think the the use of the the, the example of the components there is a really good example of how like abstraction ends up letting that down because. You know, it is just it is just a bunch of cubes and chits that really have no meaning to them whatsoever. But what you do with them has all this meaning. But you can sort of lose track of how it all works just because you're dealing with all these sort of interchangeable pieces. I, I think it has to interact too. I mean, if, we, if you know, it's bizarre to think that that's a genre of game evolution, right? But there's a there's another game. I think it's called Primordial Soup. I played it with you, Rob, where you've got yeah. guys moving around in different little squares and they sort of get adaptations and yeah, mutations. Yeah, you're an amoeba and you're mutating and adapting. And that's a game where you've got these sort of fun little pieces that connect sort of. No, they get cubes. But is it really just cubes? I forget what you use to play the amoeba, but the food is four different color cubes. Okay, the food is four different color cubes. But I remember the art for that really being evocative of like 
you know, blurp. I mean, you end up making sound effects when you play the game. Yeah, because you kind of ooze into the next space yeah. and eat some of the food, and then you poop out other <laughs> other cute colors. Yeah, it's actually a really <laughs> this good sounds game. horrifying. But, you know, it's so okay. We've got two entries in the burgeoning evolution of micro- mitochondrial cells <laughs> <laughs> genre. But my point is that you know you've got two games with uh, you know, admittedly somewhat absurd premise for a game. Um, and one of them has so much abstraction that you never actually get into the theme. I actually disagree. I think the theme in Dominant Species is disposable because like all the different effects and things that are happening don't seem logical. There's no part of it where I feel like I'm role-playing an insect. Creating a creature. Yeah, that's a good point. As opposed to, uh, what's that game where you put the little legs in the ant? Cooties? <laughs> there you go. Hey, man, you know, at least the pieces work with the theme. It's true. <laughs> that was one, one uh, brand I didn't work on during my time at Hasbro. <laughs> Left unscathed I, I, by Rob Davio. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get to touch that one. <laughs> I don't even know what they're doing with it. I don't know what you can do with it. Ants in the pants. That's the other one, right? Yeah. It's all part of the cootie <laughs> oh, line, God. along with "Don't Break the Ice." <laughs> Which, when you think about something like "Don't Break the Ice," it is all about the components. Wait, is "Don't Break the Ice" with the penguins? No, it's a like a little nine, no, twelve by twelve grid filled. What pressure, looks to be pressure like pressure? Filled. Right, you fill it with ice cubes. Like pressure fit, and then you put something on top, and you take time with a little plastic hammer and knock out one cube at a time until someone manages to hit the sort of support structure, and the whole thing collapses. And it's for like four year olds, and it's very entertaining right. for the four year old. But the parent spends about you know ten minutes building this thing upside down, and then the kid hits it with a hammer once at full speed, <laughs> and it smashes. And they're like again, and you're yeah. like not again, no. It's like Kerplunk or any of those games, they're just they're oh, they're only fun for the kid. Yeah. Um, but but again, you know, great theming makes the you know makes that make sense, and the components match it perfectly. And I think that you know, really, I think what we're talking about here is production values, right? I mean, there's all sorts of games that I've prototyped and played over the years, whether they're board games or video games, where you play early versions of them, and you sort of see the promise. And then they disappear for a year, and then you see the final game, and you're like, holy crap, this is awesome! And it's actually the exact same game that you played in the prototype. I mean, maybe they changed a rule here or there. But I mean, Rob, even when you were doing Risk Legacy, I remember the early prototypes for that were just like, and here's the thing I wrote on a piece of paper, and and it's like you sign your NDA, and then you get the box, and you're like, really? Seriously? I'm, I'm playing this white piece of paper versus that white piece of paper, yay. And then you actually get the thing in your hands and the production values made all the difference. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's a, the production value makes a difference. And like, that was really something that was, had a lot, tried to turn unboxing into a game, a, a game. Yeah. Like the game is unboxing, but, but even there, you know, I know we're confusing theme and mechanics, but I just remembered that there's missiles that you get for winning a game and you can use them and it's very thematic, but I didn't know what they were going to be for a long time. So most of the prototypes, those were flaming swords. <laughs> and it said in the rules it's like why is this a flaming sword i'm like because it's a sword on fire and it's awesome and i'm like and, and i had 12 in the box yeah yeah and then eventually i realized it wasn't that awesome <laughs> flaming swords are pretty much always awesome yeah I mean, that's fair at the micro level but you're supposed to be at a command level yes. anyway yes the game of thrones version right then you'd send the flame why are those pieces so big <laughs> It's like in I've Game got I've in Game of Thrones. I've got the Raven, and it's like the size Eight of a, everyone's, got, everyone's got like these dinner plate sized like things yeah. that denote like I've got yeah I've got the Raven or I've got what there's a big there's, sword. There's a big sword in a is there a throne? throne piece? Yeah, there's a throne. piece. There's something. There's like three pieces in each one. You're gonna like dislocate your shoulder <laughs> handing it over the table. Well, I think it's just you know they had enough space on the sheet to print that out and. 
More is not always more. Because it yeah. seems like weirdly out of scale. Well, that's what I mean. I mean, it's like they finished all the pieces they needed, and they're like, oh, we have 14 square inches left over in the lower left-hand corner of sheet five. Uh, make the sword bigger. <laughs> make the sheet smaller. <laughs> so this is, this, is, uh, this is a fantasy flight game, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they're kind of an interesting case, I think, to to talk about in the in the board gaming space because that seems to be kind of their signature is you know whatever property they've got and usually they've got like fairly uh, strong thematic properties they just produce the ever living crap out of it and sometimes that works really well there you know there are some games where I think um you know they're, they're really well served by that isn't uh, War of the Ring a Fantasy Flight uh I think one imprint of of it I was. can't remember I'm not I don't think the original printing was but I could be completely wrong. Yeah. But regardless, yeah, but regardless, same idea. Yeah, so but then you look at um, you know, the Game of Thrones board game, which is this uh, you know, really intricate like, you know, medieval diplomacy game and there you know, there's bargaining and there's warfare. But it's it's a case where I think Fantasy Flight's approach to production I find sometimes gets between me and the game. Yeah, I I think part of the problem there is that I think the designers, for, particularly for sort of the original properties that, you know, guys like Kevin Wilson and, and uh, Corey Knizia are doing. Um, Kevin just left. Did he? Flight, yeah. Oh, you should go work with him. We, we've been talking. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. Confirmed. Um, but, you know, I think that they maybe started operating maybe five, six years ago with the belief that they could get anything they wanted in the box. Uh, you know, because they seemed unafraid to charge $80 for something if, if yeah, yeah. you know, you could put enough crap in it and the game justified it. And I'm not sure that I, I think creative endeavors are almost always better with constraints. And so it, it sort of felt like the more room they had to run, the less the game supported the amount of crap they were putting in the box. And, you know, I look at sort of like the first descent box was pretty awesome. It was like really cool minis and lots of stuff. And the game was sort of just complex enough to justify having all that crap. And you get towards the end of that game's run. And it's just like, throw more plastic in the box. And now here's another 20 page rule book. Cause you have to figure out what to do with the hell yeah. with all this plastic. Yeah. It's weird. It's more cowbell. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, put it up to 11. I mean, I get it. And the temptations there, but I think there's a law of diminishing returns, right? Where you get, if there's not enough in the box, you feel like you didn't get your money's worth. And then you, you feel like more and more like, look how much I got for this amount. And then eventually you get to the point where you're like, look at all of this. Right? Like, it's just sort of bombastic. It's Well, because the spectacle itself can be awesome, right? I mean, that's why miniatures gaming is fun. is right. because you get like a big table and you put all your guys on. You spend all your time painting everything. And, and you get that moment of stepping back from the table and saying, look what I have wrought. You know, and that's awesome. And... Um, you know, in a lot of video games and strategy video games in particular, that sense of spectacle often is better than the game. I mean, certainly I look at some of the bigger like Civil War type games. Half the fun of those games tends to be seeing like, you know, I have three divisions crouching through Gettysburg. You're you really going to bring up Civil War games? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> You're, that's going to be your go-to example? Yeah, it, that was going to be my go-to example. Well, because there's that sense of... <laughs> giant spectacle in them that is fun and you know the the mechanics of those games are often quite simplistic right when you get down to it you know the regiments are acting as a unit and so the, all the spectacle of individual guys falling and whatever doesn't really matter to the outcome of the game or something like sins of a solar empire which is a great game but a great part of the fun of that game is like getting your big you know arrows and you know boxes pointing at each other and then zooming way in and watching stuff blow up Right, but really, it's just arrows and boxes. Yeah, those are definitely cases of. I mean, Sins especially, I think, is a game where 
you know, it's a good enough game that it could probably get by with graphics that are nowhere near Just as good. arrows and boxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. It could, it could be very abstract. It could be, uh, you know, like, you know, almost like Homeworld, you know, where just right. sort of blocky shapes floating through space. It'd be cool. It could look like Flotilla. But because it does, because they did invest all this time in creating all these different models and these different, like, aesthetics for all the different uh, races, and then, you know, spent a hell of a lot of time, like, lighting the ships and, like, you know, animating their attacks, what you end up with is a game that, in some ways... I think it's almost like the spectacle that makes it feel like more of a 4X than maybe it really is. Because in a lot of ways, it's a traditional RTS where you just, like, you know, you run your ships out there, you claim territory, you get resources, you build fleets, and you go attack. But because it gives you the sense of scale and sweep, suddenly it does feel like, okay, no, this is a game about dominating, you know, a solar system. And that's, and that's you know, amazingly effective. It changes my, my relationship to the game. Well, I mean, I, I, I hate to keep harping on Risk here, but you know, one of the things that's really fun about a big game of Risk is that moment when you get to like scoop thirty-five guys and dump them on the board, right? And you're creating that for a moment, and what is a very abstract game, you're creating that moment of spectacle where you're like, "Aha!" You know, yeah, where I'm, you push the entire like you just grab this whole wad of troops and shove them in your friend's <laughs> territory. And fuck you! <laughs> well, it's interesting. You just remind me of something um, four years ago. Uh, I was asked to redo Risk, and so we did that. Um, the Risk Black Ops edition, right, 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 which was sort of this. We ran a limited run of a thousand units, and because it was never being sold, we didn't have to have certain things on the box like barcodes, and you know, like it was this minimalistic box. And then the pieces were cubes, and everyone loved it. It was like black and white and glossy. Took that exact same gameplay, put different graphics on it, turned the cubes into arrows, and everyone hated it. <laughs> right, it was just weird right. thing. It's like, I don't, why would I want arrows? I'm like, well, you had cubes. It's like, well, I want horses or cubes, but not arrows. And I'm like, you know, I, it was like this very strange... Well, were you supposed to do like a 300 nerd focus test on bits? <laughs> well, well, yes. <laughs> no, the reason that came around, it was actually very interesting, is we were, we were modernizing Risk. So we were going from the infantry, cavalry sort of thing. We were going to be a modern soldier and then like a tank. And we were being very careful not to make it any particular tank so it couldn't be a country or, right. a, you know, it's just sort of like these conceptions of it. And where we made a mistake is the number to market for risk in the world is Germany. Oops. Uh, and number one per capita. And they saw it the last minute and they're like, yeah, we can't sell something with soldiers and tanks taking over Europe. That's if not, <laughs> if not illegal, which it may be, they have like some weird laws after yeah. world war two. Certainly they're like, we just, the press will be too bad. And we were a week away from cutting steel to make tools. And I had a week to think of something oh, modern, God. but abstract that, but everyone would understand and then we're like, oh, arrows, like, you know, war maps. Right. And then you discover there's like a thousand arrows. Do they have tails? Do they not have tails? Right. And then, and, and then <laughs> you know. Do they curve? Do they not curve? Right. right. And, and, you know, we did it and it was kind of a disaster. And I look at it and I'm like, you can't tell the difference between the ones and the threes. And you can't pick them up. And it was just a question of not thinking of Germany. <laughs> that was the issue. You know, I'm, I'm curious then, uh, you know, that, that story is kind of interesting to me. Did Risk Legacy sell in Germany? Did you run any, issue, any issues there? Because then you have dudes covering like armor paint. But it's, very, and, like, but yeah. it's fantasy. It's there. fantasy. It's fan future fantasy. And that was deliberate that it, it was supposed to be in the future. And it did sell in Germany very poorly. Really? Yeah. But it was funny. Some, I forget, uh, Hasbro didn't sell it. It was like a smaller company. Right. Picked it up and then went to Essen and put out the game and opened up all the components and put them out on the table and said, here it is. Isn't it amazing? Because I was seeing pictures from Essen and they were just letting people play and open stuff and look through it. And it doesn't work that way. And so I think it got kind of this 
it looked like the big sloppy mess that you would expect if you opened everything up at the same time right. and did it. And, and that, tried to figure out how to play. Yeah. I mean, very deliberate decision never to bring it to a convention because it doesn't demo. Like, you can talk about it, but you can't, you know, instead it was like, okay, we're going to give games to people, let them play it, and do reports on it. But um, That's something I wanted to talk a little bit about as well is to what degree does the, um, you know, convention environment sort of dictate decisions uh, that you make regarding components and production values. Yeah, because you're often uh, when you're demoing something at a convention, it's a pre-release version sometimes, yep. right? So you're it's literally stuff you made at home or you had the shop fabricate for you. It's one of a kind stuff. Yeah, I don't think uh, the conventions wouldn't make much of a difference. I mean, really, in, you know, to be honest, it's a business. It's going to be profitability, right? You're going. I mean, now with my new company, I'm going to have all these great ideas for components, and then look at it and go. Oh, I want to make a profit, right? I'm going to spend right. a year making one this. One copy like that, and, and I'm the gonna, rest of the market will look like that. I'm going to do a print run of 5,000, and every one of those has to really count. Um, <laughs> so economics makes more of a difference, but you don't want to go out with something flat, right? Like you don't want to be at a convention or have a picture online or go on Board Game Geek and you look at it and people go, eh, what is it? You know, like it, it doesn't look fun. I mean, Julian was saying, you're playing a spectacle. Because if you take all the graphics off of a board game, it's kind of like a pizza box filled with recycling. <laughs> I mean, right. it, like, I don't want to, you know, like, it, it's, it's, you have to bring that to life, right? You have to turn the cardboard and the plastic into something that isn't recycling, and it makes a big difference. You want to open and feel like, I want to interact with this. But, you know, sometimes you see it go the other way. I mean, I'm thinking about the heyday of, like, cheap-ass games, right, and Kill Dr. Lucky and things like that, which made a virtue out of their sort of low-rent quality, um, I mean, there are some examples of that in the video game space, too, where games are sort of deliberately, I wouldn't say insultingly, but kind of in your face about the fact that they just don't really care too much about making this easy to play. I mean, that game Bronze that we played, that strategy game, I can't even remember who made that because I'm a terrible person. I don't know, but I think Matrix published it. I don't yeah. know. Uh, but again, you know, just the thinnest layer of putting any graphics or anything on it, or, or frankly, almost any Vic Davis game. You know, we've had him on the show. We love his games. Um, but with the exception of like Six Gun Saga, where I thought he kind of made a little bit more effort to make the art cooler and stuff like that, for the most part, those games are pretty thin on the production values. Well, I, I don't know. Hmm. Okay, see, I, I disagree with you there. Because I think what Vic Davis does, I think Vic Davis operates under some serious technical limitations, which yes. he's the first to tell you about. Yes, yeah, but I, mean, I think he, that, but I think that's great for him. I think he makes a better game, right? But I think, you know, setting that aside, though, you know, so that's a production values issue. But I think in terms of like what he does with what what he can make, I do think uh, there, there's a rather there's a great deal of care sort of lavished on that stuff. I think Armageddon Empires, if you look at like the cards, for instance, you know, the the the, the unit art on the cards that you play with, you know, it's sort of suggestive of like you know this you know post apocalyptic suggestive, uh, yes. But if it's not like it's not like he paid 150 dollars per card to have some artist do a really nice painting for a day. No, but no, but if you see a dude next to a giant sand crawler with like a laser rifle, like that gets across something. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I'm not saying it's I'm not saying it's entirely abstract, but I'm just saying that you know, compared but, to the level of you know lavish art being done into Civ Five or something like that. Yeah, that no, that, that's a very good point. Where Civ Five is Civ Five is interesting because, and I kind of wonder how how uh, you know they, they sort of feel about that in retrospect because Civ Five really more than any other previous civilization game I can remember, really went all in on being like, you know, how close to like photorealistic can we get a strategy game? And I remember like the first screenshots, what everyone what everyone talked about in this first set of screenshots in uh I think your your cover story for GamePro yeah. uh was the water. 
Yeah, where, like, like realistic water effects. Somebody's trying to yeah, get like what the somebody hell? Spent, like this insane amount of time, like creating like you know the the, the play of play of sunlight over the water and, or like, and the waves coming in and actually crashing on a beach. And yeah, yeah, no, just ridiculous. Yeah, well, it, you know, it it looked amazing. Uh, you know, it, it was a terrific looking game. But I'm not sure. You know, once again, I, I'm not sure if you know that really necessarily serves the game. Uh, well, compare it to, to you know Fallen Enchantress, right? Which shares a lot in common with Civ Five mechanically. Um, has a much sort of lower rent art style. I don't mean that in a particularly deprecating way. I mean it's 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 fine for the game, but it certainly isn't like we're going to pour all of our money into the art on this game. They did what they could with what they had. Um, do you think it detracts from the experience of the game? Well, you know, in some ways I do actually, and I think uh, part of that is because. Everything they made with Fallen Enchantress, and uh, because of the nature of the Elemental series, all about customization, everything's meant to be modular. And so there's no like, you know, there's no idea of like, well, this is what a spearman looks like for this faction. You know, that 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 concept doesn't exist because you're supposed to be able to swap out, you know, what the per- what the spearman is wearing. Maybe it's a spear woman. Maybe you know, wearing purple. Maybe gold. Maybe it's a different sort of armor. All these different variations. And so what I think that ends up to ends up what what that leads you to is. You made it so modular that it has to look acceptable, no matter what like random pile of crap. So it makes you create. it generic, yeah, a little generic. And I think that's sort of you know, it's something that um, I think uh, uh, Elemental and Fallen Enchantress uh, sort of struggle against at every turn. And I think you know, I think it's getting better, but you know, I, I think if you were to take that series down to brass tacks and sort of like you know, what would I do with it differently? You know, I might actually uh, emphasize customization much less. I mean, I think, you know, an interesting part of this in thinking about what's been going on in the video game side of the world is there's been a real backlash against high production values, right? We've got the whole retro pixel art style movement going on. I mean, we got uh, uh, Hotline Miami out last week, which, you know, is completely, you know, 1993 8-bit graphic style. Um, and And I think we're seeing more of that, not less. And we're starting to see it enter more and more mainstream types of games. Um, you know, I'm curious whether we'll see the same thing happen on the board game side. I haven't seen a big resurgence of, say, abstract strategy gaming since I, maybe 10 years ago. I kind of feel like maybe something opposite is happening in board gaming. And, uh, you know, you're, you guys are probably more up on this than I am. But, like, when I look at Steve Jackson sort of, like, relaunching Ogre, right, by oh, a Kickstarter, and it's yeah. like, you know, it's the same Ogre you always loved. And Ogre is a lo-fi friggin' game. Like, that is, you know, the, <laughs> it, like, it is, yeah, it, makes adva- sure. it makes Advanced Squad Leader look like, you, you mean know, Lord strategically of the or how it looks? How it looks, yeah, like um, it's both, really. I mean, right, you're supposed to, you can carry it in your wallet for crying out loud, yeah. But but the point is that like, so you know, when he goes back and it's like, okay, we're gonna do ogre, but this time we're just gonna like, it's gonna be like ogre, like you've never seen it before, and how like you couldn't give them money fast. I enough. couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> give them money fast enough. It's absolutely. And true. what was that new? Um, there was a Kickstarter project. It's sort of a new line of miniatures. That's of Reaper. To. Yeah, Reaper just kickstarted two hundred miniatures for a hundred bucks or something like that. Wow. Yeah, it was hugely successful. They made like two and a half million dollars on their Kickstarter. Tell me about this Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> you should look into it, Rob. Well, I, I, let me write that down. <sighs> two and a half million dollars, I think it was. On well, so what was the what was the sort of the the, the concept behind Reaper? Because I got the sense that in the well, they, it seems disruptive in that space. Well, the the thing, I mean, that's first of all, there's no game there. This is purely them just making minis. But what they've done is, you know, Reaper's pretty much known for making good to excellent quality pewter, you know, white metal minis. And they're one of sort of the last people standing in that space. And what they actually kickstarted was this quote unquote bone series, which is entirely plastic, which is sort of an interesting Mm. 
twist for them. Now, I don't know whether the thinking there was, this is a big big risk. We better make sure we've pre-sold a lot of this before we go tool up a lot of plastic and learn the plastics business. Because I, I mean, you can tell me, but I think there's a lot to learn there. I don't think you just wake up one morning and say, oh, we've been doing pewter forever. Now let's do plastic. No, it's a different thing. And there's dozens of variations on plastic that I still struggle with because I had experts at Hasbro who could tell me the difference between polypropylene and high impact styrene and you know, all sorts of different things like that. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do think that that does speak towards, you know, this sort of uh, heightened production value stuff going on in the board game space. But I'm not actually sure I'm a fan of that. I mean, we talked about the fantasy fight, fantasy flight bloat problem. Um, and I've started to see that in other games, uh, you know, that are coming down. And then, you know, and then I see something like Mice and Mystics, which came from uh, last week from Plat Hat Games, which is a fairly simple game in its sort of construction. You could teach it in 15 minutes or something like that. But they invested really heavily in beautiful plastic minis. I mean, yeah, they're, like they're gorgeous. They're like some of the best plastic minis I've ever seen in a traditional board game box. Um, and so we've, you know, that kind of trade off. I mean, does how how much? I mean, if you can tell us, like, what's the difference between putting in a bunch of cardboard chits and putting in twenty plastic minis that are that high quality? I mean, is it like a lot? It's like five bucks a box, a lot. Um. Uh, you know, I didn't know there was going to be math. On that. <laughs> uh, you know, like a cardboard sheet, and I like I, it's hard to say because you're looking at the thickness of the sheet and the print right. run and everything like that. But I mean, you don't need to make a tool for a cardboard with sheet with a bunch of circles punched out. Well, you, yeah. you need to make a punch, but that's pretty easy to make. A, you know, like a die to do that right. as opposed to a giant several ton mold that you need to do it. And then there's just more fussiness. There's cycle time when you make plastic. Like it goes in there and it injects plastic, and then it has to cool. And the longer the cooling time, the you know fewer you can make in any given period. Right. And um, so there is a big jump from cardboard to plastic in terms of both startup costs and then like actual piece costs. And so if there. you're doing a short print run, you're never going to invest in the molds to do custom plastics to do two thousand copies, right? Which is why people right. use cubes, right? Right. Well, also it's I get the sense from talking to uh, some of the people over at Catalyst who make uh, the the BattleTech series, and they are currently I think uh, working on releasing. Maybe it's already out, but sort of a uh, flying battleships in uh you know it's it, I don't know it's it's the steampunk game right where it's like dreadnoughts you know flying through the air and sounds doing awesome. battle. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it sounds pretty badass. Okay, cool. But one of the things they run run into again and again is as sort of a small specialty publisher they they really put a huge emphasis on component quality but it's i get the sense that in some ways that's blown up in their faces because the logistics of when you're kind of a small market publisher and you're you know putting in small orders a lot of your vendors kind of don't give a shit if they deliver product on time or take it seriously and they've run into so many pro- problems just you know getting maps printed getting you know the uh, mold you know the molds uh, set yeah, I mean, I've heard of this. I have yet to have that pleasure myself. Uh, but <laughs> you I too will be screwed shortly. Yeah, <laughs> this isn't what I ordered. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's just it's tough to get your head around that. I, I was lucky enough to be embedded in a, a large company that kind of made its money on plastic and was surrounded by experts, so I got to see it. So I learned a lot, probably not as much as I should have, but um, yeah, it's going to be a very different world to be out there just as a small publisher and just being like, hey, I need you know, this tool just for this amount. Does it change how you design something when you're thinking about that, that end point? Because, you know, the components can't, I mean, you you know, at the most extreme, you have games where the components 
are the game, like a Jenga tower. Right? right. And then all the way at the other end, you have chess, which you could play on a grid, you know, erasing and writing and, you know, sure. the, the numbers. And so you've got this huge realm of differences between where the components are really integral to how the game's going to work and not. You know, and Legacy sort of an interesting case in between where the whole experience of it couldn't really exist without the components and the locking away of things and the fixing the board and all that. Do you, does it change how you think about a game when you're thinking about the components? Do you like often think, well, if I think about this as a $40 game where I can put a bunch of stuff in the box, now I'm designing a different kind of game? Yeah, I mean, one thing, because at Hasbro, the, you know, I was responsible for the, the bottom line profit, not of the whole game itself, but of like the physical stuff in the box. They you know, would tell me, hey, you have $4.83, period. To put the crap in the box. Right. Yeah. You can come in at four seventy five and $0.08 cents under, like that's going to be great. So I've always designed with the production and the components in there. And I think a lot of uh, sort of hobby designers who just sell games to publishers don't think about that at all. And I can't help, I can't undo that, right? I'm working on a bunch of stuff now, but one thing I was thinking of, like I immediately thought of this mechanic that would kind of fit part of the game. Like, that's great. Oh, that's going to just be like a wasted deck of cards, right? Just to do, it's going to be like 60 cards just to do that. I don't want to spend that, right? right? So I immediately went a different way and integrated and stuff like that. And I just think that comes from, always thinking like what you know this is a real thing it has to be made and therefore it's going to cost money so it's like i i'm always designing with how it's going to look at the end yeah and and you know i think the other thing that i find intriguing is um the idea of components that sort of live outside the game we've seen a couple examples of this like the stonehenge series which was sort of a set of components to build games around or the ice house sets from looney labs where you know you've got everything from throwaway three minute games to big strategic games that people have mm-hmm. designed around that but they're all almost always really abstract i mean i'm i'm it's always intrigued me the idea that you could come up with a sort of kit bash version that lets you do something a little bit more than just a simple abstract game like that, where the components are, you know, you you could actually even sell it without the components and somebody else could outsource different versions of the component. I mean, that's one of the cool things about chess, right, is if you're a chess player, you can get everything from the $3 magnetic set at the CVS to the $1,000 chess set with the 3X weighted bases and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I always kind of feel bad for serious chess players because i know at christmas and their birthday everyone gives them a theme chess set that they don't <laughs> it's like Which oh hey you closet. love you love chess here's simpsons. the simpsons and you're like <laughs> and then you're like well wait lisa's the what, the rook like you like if you're really into chess you you're playing the math right right and you have certain form factors that tell you what the pieces do and that's what you're comfortable with right and if the board's too big or the board's too, too small, small it's like it'll screw up your mojo right you want the, yeah. the the board to disappear not constantly trying to figure out what captain picard is you know well, representing i mean it's funny you say that i was i mean i'm in a somewhat regular every month or two poker group right and we've been playing off and on for years now and we always use the same set of chips which are mine and we always use just the basic bicycles you know a red deck and a blue deck and every once in a while we throw them out and buy a new deck and we played don't throw them out uh, i'll get to that that. (laughs) um but we played at somebody's house and and i showed up at the last minute and hadn't brought any of my stuff and we were playing with those plastic cards that you're supposed to take to the beach and we all had the most miserable evening wait i'm sorry plastic cards they make plastic playing cards that like you know they're waterproof Okay, so is that the ones with like the sort of slick surface on them? No, they're actually made plastic. out of plastic. 
Oh no! It's like like, like children's bath book, like plastic, yeah. or oh no! No, I mean they're 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 they're, they, t- they're tiles. They're well designed. You yeah. can shuffle them and everything else, but the edges are sharp and and we and we realized that like after two hours, we'd had an incredibly shitty night of playing poker, and it was entirely because we didn't have that feeling of the cards and you know the slight you know stickiness from. Yeah. Well, that's you know poker's an interesting example again because like think of the difference between like playing poker. Just on like you know a shitty beer stained table or something like that, with like you know old like sort of worn cards, some bent and everything. On versus the chips, like, like on the felt and, and the chips, those, those shitty crappy plastic, 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 plastic oh, chips. Tinkle, 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 tinkle. Right, but the thing is, it's the same game. It's the exact same game. All the components, like they're totally functional. But you take that same game and you put it around like you know a table with the felt top. Right, and clay chips. Clay yeah. chips. Yeah. I, I defy anyone to have a pile of clay chips in front of them and not play with them. Oh, I know. They're you can't amazing. help it. Yeah. And they're expensive. Yes. Yeah, but you know, if you're if you are serious about it, totally worth it because it turns out that you know, in a weird way, even though it's the exact same game, you know, the pleasure you take in the experience totally dependent on the quality of the little bits and pieces you're using. Even though it's it, you know, it's totally arbitrary. It's this total right. you know arbitrary preference. So there's a curious of how much it's the quality and how much it's like you have in you have joy from your memories of your poker game. Because of the familiarity. So when you go back in, it's like, oh, I'm back here again. And it's very comforting. It's like, you know, rituals right. at the holidays. Right. If you took the bicycle cards out and you had Aviator. I'm trying to think of what a different. Different brand. Right? Different perfectly pack. good yeah. cards, but they look different. Different bags. Or like the, well, the difference between like the standard pinochle size and actual poker cards, which are a little squatter and tend right. to have diamonds on the back. Right. So it, like if you had a deck of cards yeah. that weren't plastic, but weren't your cards. Would people still react that way? They have it different, or if there was like some goofy crap on them, like if they were like you know, Anna Montana themed cards, right? Still the exact same size. Yeah, it would totally change the experience. It would. It would. All right, now you can go out and do your social experiment. <laughs> you know what? What you, we were just talking about with poker actually reminds right. me of. Um, I've totally gotten hooked on these, um, like fantasy coins that our pal uh what that our pal hedge wizard from the games of jobs forums uh has bought were all oh, right you, uh, if you go, yeah. yeah if you go and play any any sort of game at his house like if it uses any sort of money at all like he just you know takes whatever cardboard coins come with the games those just go right in the trash or well actually no it's hedge wizard so they don't go in the trash they go in a plastic bag for like go in an index in file trash. yeah but um so what he does is, what he's done is he's replaced it all with like these really like heavy, high quality like brass and pewter like yeah. coins from like fantasy realms. And I gotta be honest, I'm kind of addicted to it, it because it you play like Lords of Waterdeep with this stuff, or you play like uh, Merchants and Marauders, which is a really like excellent like piracy. Uh, it's you know it's like Sid Meier's Pirates, the board game. It's fantastic. But you play that with like actual like heavy you know you know faux doubloons, and suddenly. When you actually like open the treasure chest and scoop all the gold out, it's like holy <laughs> shit! Like I, I'm rich. You just kind of want to make it rain, you know? Well, like, or like um, uh, a great game called Diamant, which is sort of a press your luck game for like five to ten people, um, is printed in two versions. There's the old German version, which is called Diamant, which has little boxes that you make that are like your treasure chests that oh, are, have right. thick cardboard, and it's got little uh, diamonds and rubies in it for ones and fives. And so there's this process of scooping all of these little rubies up and sticking them in your box. And then there's a version called Ink and Gold, which is the reprint, which uses really tiny little crappy pieces of plastic and a little tent fold to shove your stuff in to hide it. 
Guess which game is more fun? <laughs> yeah, I wish that that stuff didn't cost money to put in the box. <laughs> Sorry, Rob. That's all right. I figure it out. We're sitting here making your life miserable. Yeah, no, like, no, you, oh, just, you, just, you just pick your battles. Yeah. Well, I, I do think it's, it's useful that in the case of like those coins, for instance, I am interested in this, this idea that like you can have these game components that are interchangeable across different games. Sort of like what Reaper is doing, you know? Those miniatures can work with just about, you know, whatever you want them to. Yeah, and there's, really. and, and there's also plenty of folks out there that sell, like we were saying before, tons of replacement meeple pieces for all sorts of stuff. Like, I mean, I don't have them separated this way, but like, in, you know, in my copy of Agricola, I have 25 sheep. Well, there are plenty of games that actually involve sheep in them. You could use them in all sorts of things. You know, why not? Right. So I, there's that idea of having like a, a bookshelf of game components that you bring out based on whatever game you're going to play. That's an intriguing idea. That's what Cheap Ass Games was. Yeah. You know, about it. It's like you already have most of these pieces. Right. Every game, you're just getting them again. It's like dice, right? How many more six sided dice do I need in my life? Lots. As long as I, <laughs> I need to eat. <laughs> you're not in the dice business, you're in the game oh, business. Oh, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But no, it, it's I just I do find it interesting that like, you know the the tactile quality of these components can can have such a huge impact on the play experience. I, I you know one of my favorite little throwaway convention games is Button Men. I know you've ever played Button Men. It's a very clever dice game, and what they yeah, sell you it. is the button. That's it. That's all you ever get from them is a button and a little piece of paper that tells you what that button does. And the button's got on it a couple of numbers representing different size dice so it's got like a d6 and a d10 and a d12 and the color of it tells you something about the value of that die in the game system and the implication is you've already got more dice than they you know what the hell to do with and you probably have some favorite dice so if you've got a button that's got like two d20s and a d12 and two d6s you go to your dice collection and you scoop those five dice out and those are the ones that you play with so you're taking something that already has sentimental value for you and you're making a game out of that and all they've done is basically give you this little rules cheat sheet that happens to be on a button. Um, and, I mean, I have a whole box full of those buttons. I mean, I must have 50 button and buttons sitting around somewhere. And I still pull it out and play with the kids when they give me that, you know, it's a rainy day and I'm bored thing. It's like, get, get the dice bag and the box of buttons. It's weird. I mean, we keep talking about, like, you know, your poker game. And I, was, I made the joke before about it's, you know, just a box of recycling. We really imprint onto games. And that's what I really think that the production is about. Is you, you have to basically, as soon as someone opens a box and starts interacting, that you want them to bond with it. Be like, look at this guy. I want to be him. He's off. <laughs> He's got a sword that's on fire. Right. He's great. Like, we should back do that. To the, back to the flaming <laughs> back to sword. The sword. I, sent some, I sent some motif. Yeah, it's, it's a throwback. In stand-up comedy, it's, it's, it's a throwback. <laughs> you know, you got to go back. Thank you. Good night. So. No, but I, I, think, that's, I think that's a really important point, actually, is that uh, you know, with any game, you, you sort of the moment someone starts starts playing it or unboxes it or whatever, it's almost like you got a timer going. You know, between like you know the, their their current level of excitement, and interest, and you've got like you know a limited window to hook them using that. And if you squander it, you know you 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 know you're gonna have a very hard time sort of winning them back over. You know, to, to get them to stick around and see how the game fully works. Because honestly, you know, for most of us, certainly for me, it takes forever to really understand like how a game really works and how it all comes together and what makes it cool. But those first impressions, those, those superficial things, you know, whether it's the tactile, you know, feeling of, of the bits and pieces or, uh, you know, the, the graphics and uh, like art design of a computer game, you know, those are the things that are kind of going to, you know, 
shape my initial impressions. Much as I hate to say it, you know, I like I like to think, you know, I, I don't, I'm not swayed by superficial concerns, but that you know, that's bullshit. I I wonder how successful XCOM would have been if it hadn't been as polished as it is visually, right? For precisely that reason, right? One of the things that I think is so brilliant about the recent XCOM reboot is not just the gameplay, because the gameplay is fairly predict. I don't want to say predictable, but I mean, there's nothing like so ingenious about the gameplay that it's like, oh my god, nobody's ever done that in a tactics game before, right? It's it's obviously very well done, and I think the AI is surprisingly good, et cetera, and so on. But I think for players that are not part of this genre at all, they buy XCOM, they toss it into their Xbox. It brings them in so well because it uses all those trappings of big budget action games and action movies. And then the actual gameplay is this fairly straightforward, you know, move your tactical guy around turn based mechanics. But in between stuff blowing up and guys are swearing and guys are, you know, roadie running to get behind cover. But all you're actually doing is a turn based strategy game. There was that amazing video just before XCOM came out of Jake Solomon trying to sell it in like, <laughs> yeah, a local game store. Oh, it's it's one of the best pieces of promotion I've ever seen. You, you, we'll, we'll have to show it to you after this, Rob, because it's, it's it's wonderful. Where Jake Solomon is in like your standard game store trying to sell Halo heads, on right? And basically, XCOM. yeah, he's trying yeah. to basically put it over on people. It's really illuminating in some ways because it, it's sort of a window into sort of how they conceived of the challenge of making a turn based strategy game. You know, a turn based tactical. Yeah, Box, yeah. yeah, in this era. And so what you know what they've kind of done is he's sort of pitching it as like, you know, oh man, it's like shooting aliens, you like Halo, you like Gears of War, it's gonna be badass. It's just like that, but you're the commander. He doesn't say it's a totally different genre. He just sort of like changes right. your role in the world. You right. know, you're not Marcus Phoenix, you're the dude on the headset giving Marcus Phoenix his orders. And then he slips and says, Yeah, and you could play like for ten hours and then lose. And then lose. And that doesn't sound fun, but it is <laughs> But going back, I think you're right. Um a couple minutes ago, you were talking about your first experience with a game, and I and I think it's like a book or a movie. It's like it's like a first date, right? When you sit down, if that first experience doesn't catch your interest, or if you're like, even if it's not great, you're like, oh, there's something here, or we never got to see how that worked, and like you want to have that second date. And if as a designer, if you're not thinking about, well, what's it like to open this and and sort of have that first time, then you're kind of missing that key selling point. Because um, I have plenty of games, and some of them I played once and. They're just on the shelf. They're not bad. They just, just didn't grab you. It didn't grab yeah. me. It's a, it, there's a huge section of games that I consider, oh, I'll play that if someone else wants to. Right. But right. I'm not, not going to throw it but away. But I'm not going to recommend right. it. You're not eBaying it off. Right. You'd see the value, but it's just there's something else you'd rather play at yeah. all times. If, if I yeah. get to choose, I'm not going to pick that one. Right. Yeah, I've got plenty of games down on the shelf that are probably exactly the same. Most games. But there is that, there is that fine line, though, between... Uh, you know, the thing that looks really exciting when you've laid it out, you know, it looks like a war is happening on your tabletop. But then there is also that other, that flip side of it's just too much of a pain in the ass to bust out. You yep. know, the, the, the ergonomics and, you know, the setup and takedown. Battle Masters, right? I mean, great old games workshop game from uh, Steve, right? Steve Baker. It was Milton Bradley. Actually. Milton Bradley. Back when they worked Back in, with Games Workshop. Yeah, um, in England. You know, which has a map that is four feet by six feet or something It's like a that. twister map. Yeah. It's, it's, it's four by four, five by five. Wait, five I've by never five. seen this. I'll pull it out. But the problem is is that it's it's designed to use basically Games Workshop style figures, but it's also designed to be something you can put back in the box. So you take apart all of these like little guys on horseback off their mounts, etc. So to actually set this game up, you not only need a lot of space and an iron to get the map flat again, 
you need to spend half an hour putting all the bits back together. And, you know, it doesn't yeah. matter how much you love that game. If you're not 12 and that's not the only thing you've got to play, you're going to play something else. Now, you take that out for the weekend. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> all weekend. We should have. <laughs> we should do we that. Should, we should take that out. <laughs> Rabicon. I, I loved how the cannons work. The cannon. Yeah. It's so. awesome. Yeah, but it it just definitely seems like it's it's something that, you know, for every decision, for every, like, enhancement you throw, you know, you, you put in the front end, right, where you're like, okay, so this is going to look really cool when we set it up. For every single, like, you know, new new bit and piece you add in, you know, you're, you know, there's a cost on the back end, which is when it finally, you know, when you finally put that game away, when you finally take it apart, what's the last impression? How much, you know, what's the pain in the ass factor that, like, the, the players are going to be taking away from it? And strategy games, I think, suffer from this almost more than anything else uh, you know uh, the the deeper the strategy game the more that's a pain in the ass um although i will say you know if you if you're an organized person a chip-based war game sets up pretty quick compared to say war of the ring which takes you know an afternoon to set up an afternoon to play and an afternoon to take down <laughs> it's a three-day process oh, it's funny whenever i set that up and it's not quite yeah you know, it's still worth it i'm always like putting the dwarves out going and you'll sit here for the whole game <laughs> It's like, why am I even putting you on here? What are you going to do? Your decoration. Yeah. Oh, the men of the north. What are you going to do? Right. Well, see, I keep, I keep, actually, those guys are winning wars for me, just as a side note, by okay. the way. All right. Because nobody ever defends Angmar up in, up in the north. No, that's true. So if you just, like, just a couple dwarves and a couple men of the north, and, like, And the boom. witch king is over. Yeah, yeah. totally. And then you're just one, t- you're one city away. No, I, I, I have... Yeah, taking Angmar up there has been a winning strategy. But I mean, that's the that's the flip side of the spectacle in the in the physical game space is that to set up a giant spectacle takes a freak load of time and you have to put it all away, right? Which gets back to the idea of just you know you can you can enhance the spectacle by say using metal coins instead of cardboard coins. It doesn't take any more time to set up. What what interest? What I find interesting to sort of you know think about as well as the difference between sort of designing for a tabletop game or a board game versus like a PC game, because it definitely seems like, you know, for the board game designer, uh, all this stuff is sort of, I don't know, it seems like a little more holistic as, as you sort of think about how the product is going to work, how, you know, how people are going to interact with it. Whereas, and, and maybe I'm totally, you know, off the mark about this and you can tell me, but it, it, you know, definitely in video games, you know, you have department heads who are making decisions about this stuff. And yeah, there's an overall vision holder, you know, setting you know setting direction for a game, and you know that that person can you know have a variety of impacts across the game. But ultimately, you've got like you know sort of the art guys doing their thing. You know, you got like AI guys doing their thing, system designers doing their thing, and you know I, I think there are some cases where you you can sort of see you know the pieces aren't designed to fit together in a PC game uh, the way that you know they kind of have to. In a board game, well, they they have to. I mean, Hasbro's a big company, and it's the only place that I have extensive experience with. And and you run into those same things there. I mean, you have the art directors who do the box and all the printed materials and do the design. And if they're good, they sit down and play the game and work with a designer and be like, "Well, how does this work?" And if they're busy or in a hurry or something like that, and they just get overwhelmed and they ship it out to an outside graphic designer maybe to give them some initial looks, and they get back, "Oh, this looks great!" And you know, they're checking stuff off their list. And then you get back in design later, and you're like, "Wait, wait, why? Why this is it purple?" About hockey, what happened? <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's usually it's usually nothing much. You usually look at it and go, "Oh, it's it's not what I expected the tone to be, but it's fine." You really can't say, "Go spend all that money again." Right. Right. Every once in a while, you'd run into that number can't be there. Why? Well, because look, and then you explain the gameplay, and they're like, "Oops," you know, like, but that that's just 
too big thing moving too quickly. So you have engineers and you have graphic designers and you have marketing and you have VPs and everyone has an opinion about different things. And most of the time it works together. And sometimes, uh, you know, you end up with a disparate thing like you would in a PC game. Yeah. I was just, uh, you know, I was sort of thinking about a game that, uh, you know, definitely seems to have led with production values first and design second, or maybe just didn't think about putting those two things together, really, was a game put up by Calypso earlier this year, a Legends of Pegasus, which was sort of trying, uh, trying to... Is that a real game? Is that the Legends s- of Pegasus. Is that the sequel to, you know, Secret of the Magic Crystal? Yeah. <laughs> Come on, it's a, it's a perfectly space... Okay, it's pretty cliche. Uh, <laughs> but but still, it's, you know, sort of cool and spacey, you know, Pegasus, the constellation, but also the mythological creature. Pretty dope. Anyway. <laughs> You're not uh, selling. Is there a Pegasus constellation? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Look at that. I learned something already. There you go. But but, but the thing is, uh, you know, it, it's a game that didn't really work at all because, you know, it, once you started playing it, it was like they'd front-loaded everything with this game's going to look fantastic. You know, le- you know. Can anything lens flare? Let's make it lens flare. Oh, uh, you know, but it, they lavish a lot of a lot of care on the look of the game and like really detailed ship models. But the problem is that you know the entire thing was tuned to sort of like wow you graphically and everything. But the problem is the the scale of the game didn't interact with that at all. So you ended up like playing a game where you were sort of locked to the zoom level, staring at these like really intricate models that might as well not have even been there. It's the sins of a solar empire thing, right? Except you don't have the mouse wheel to scroll you all right, the way you back. You can't zoom between tactics and strategy in in millisecond. Right, and that's and that's something like you know sort of affected every like every second you were spending with this game was everything was significantly harder to do than it should have been simply because they made the decision like look you're gonna like we spent a lot of time on these graphics and you're gonna enjoy them <laughs> okay so i don't care what you know i don't care if you want a strategic view you're not getting one i you know i think one thing that is interesting thinking about the difference between a video game and a and a physical board game is you know they both cost about 50 or 60 bucks right they're about the same amount of investment yeah, I feel like the video game world, by definition, is so much more disposable. Like, I can't tell you how many games I have lying on this, around this house on formats for computers that will never be able to run again in my lifetime that I spent 60 bucks on. And, you know, I'll just throw them away eventually. But, man, I don't throw away a board game. I don't throw away a missing piece from a game I can't find anymore. I just it, – it's anathema to me to think about actually – getting rid of a physical board game even if i'm missing pieces side note here um once i uh, the last time i played war of the ring i didn't put it away properly in boromir's card uh got left out and everything and the idea of losing this card just like you know it, it just didn't like the board game was put away it was i i was one of, during my move so the board game was packed away and like buried somewhere but i had this card and i was like i'm not gonna lose this card right because then the whole, game the whole game's broken. ruined i'm gonna buy i'm gonna have to buy and, and my, my print run is out of print right so you know i've got the best version of this game there's ever going to be so i don't want to lose this card so i put it somewhere really precious i stuff it in my passport you know because like you know if that thing goes missing then like we're in deep shit so like i you know stuff in the passport and everything and i'm going through border border uh the border crossing into canada uh for trip to montreal and <laughs> you know, the dude the boromir falls out it's like a, the worst bribe ever and he's, <laughs> what are you trying to get away with here like, son there's a little something for you yeah so he was like it's this so yeah so he was like is this you know is this your ID? <laughs> I was like, okay, no. I was like, no, that's boring. You're kind of a Sean Bean looking motherfucker. I can see that. <laughs> yeah. So, 
So, but the, but the thing is that he's like, is this a drug thing, kid? Is this, you know, what is this? What's he smoking? Because Boromir's like blowing his horn, but it also it looks like Boromir. God, no. it's like Boromir's taking a massive toke. It's the world's biggest choice. It's like, oh shit. No, I swear to God, it's just a board game. Read the text. Read the text. Thank God it was Canada. Oh my God. Well, you see, you just proved my point. You're so attached to it, you almost went to fuck me in the ass in Canada. (laughs) They're going to search the shit out of my car. Because it's like, I'm just, just, here's my my blow on a fatty card. And I've got a key, I've got like five kilos of weed in the backseat. It's true though with that game. I, I took the time. I was going to paint everything. Yeah, so I went to a friend's house and, we and painted. All were. Right, we all were. And I painted one rider of Rohan, and then it was at my desk at work. And I don't know where it is now, but oh, I have no. to remember when you play that the first guy who's dead doesn't come, come doesn't go actually go go in the box. Right. Like he he just pops up over here. Like you know he's still in the in the good pool. And then and then after that. Oh, that's such a good point, though. That's yeah, that is a game that you. It really depends on the integrity of your set. Like missing pieces will like change the game because the component count yeah. is a game element. Yeah. Well, th- we should use that as a segue to talk about the thing you're working on now. My first game. Your first game. Iron- well, yeah. You pointed out very smartly that you know it's going to take me a long time to go from hey I'm starting my own game company to having games. Right. And what could I be doing in the meantime? And so you said. You should come up with a game that you give away for free. Because I'm a business man. <laughs> so that's my business advisor. I, I took that. No, and so the idea is to make a game that uh, you use with components you already have around. Right. And so uh, game's been play-tested enough where I feel like I can put it up there. Okay. You know, I, um, so I, I just need to sit down and edit the rules and make it look shiny, which I hope to do this week. But the game's called Viking Funeral. And you mentioned it before. This is what we sort of talked about. You know, you have a deck of cards. And then you just throw them away because you're missing a piece or they're sticky or their corners bent or they're marked somehow. And so Viking Funeral is a game you play with a deck of cards before you throw it away to give it a proper funeral. Um, so it can be played with any deck of cards down to like a minimum of 30. So, you could, you know, your dog could have eaten the six of spades and it's like, oh, time, you know, and so it's a game that's meant to be played as you throw it away. Um, and so you write on the cards and you rip them up. And I'm probably the only person who turned throwing away a deck of cards into a role-playing game. It's, which is, it's pretty fun. We actually burned our cards. Did you really? <laughs> yes. People are going to be like, that's what he does. All he does is burn cards. Like, he's a very strange man. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, bit, a little bit of a stereotypical thing you're building there. Yeah, well, no, I mean, everyone said that Risk Legacy was destructive. And I actually thought it was actually a construction kit. Like, you're putting together a game, but a few things were getting decided. And I'm like, okay, I'll make a destructive game. <laughs> like, I'll show you what that's I'll like. I'll show you, motherfucker. <laughs> but then I'm like, well, I don't want really people destroying things so it's something you're already going to throw away right right? and so it's it's a two-player game where um it's actually like you know a a card is dead like you turn over your first card and six of diamonds oh and it's the funeral for the six of diamonds and so the different viking clans show up and of course they get into fights and they stab each other and more people die and the survivors go to the mead hall and drink it off like hey good fight you know and then it's kind of silly and so so you're gonna actually like get this up like in a week well, now I am because I'm talking about it. It's on my list of things to uh, to do. I mean, I could just throw the rules up as they are now, but it's sort of they're sort of rambling and stuff. And I'd like to put some graphics and you know a setup of how it's played and things like that. Cool! I can't wait to see how you actually finish it out. Much like you played, but with okay. graphics. Cool. So 
And then, you know, put it up there and hold, I, no one's found a real, like, broken I mean, strategy to it and stuff. But uh, so I feel pretty good. Cool. So Hey, we just had a game announcement there on the show. Go. Yeah, absolutely. A free game where you write on cards. <clears throat> or burn them. Or burn them. See, it's all about the free. It's all about the freemium. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just gotta monetize that shit. No, just just volume. Right. Hey, if enough people play it, <laughs> enough people play it, then you, you know. secretly bought stock in the <laughs> your goal. Is, your, your, your goal is simply to be acquired at this point. Actually, <laughs> just like Iron Wall. Boy, we got a lot of people playing our card games. A lot of people. We have a billion but, dollars. Yeah, we had two hundred eighteen downloads. We're <laughs> buy us out. So, quick question though. So, as far as um. You know the, the the components. So what is it? So so what is it like made out of? Like you're building custom decks of cards for this eventually, or is it something like I download the rules and I can just be like sort of? You yeah, know. I mean basically, if you have a deck of cards, it's a game that's meant to be played. As you're like, oh, this deck is old. We're gonna throw it away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. And that's it. And it's like, oh, well, there's there's a game designed to play for the throwing away process. Right. Um, but, I but no plans to like now you now you can get the official enhanced like Viking <laughs> funeral like we do you like burly men with beards here's a deck of cards <laughs> wait it's already missing one yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I randomly have one so it's useless except to play this now there's no no plans to sell cards right now that you would destroy but if this thing takes off like wildfire and people are saying I need to keep buying a deck of cards oh my from you to destroy. I will See, make that. Board happen. Game Geek was right. Board Game Geek was right. They knew it was a conspiracy to get people to buy shit over and over again. Yep. And now you're proving it. That was the. I'm proving it. I've been I've been unmasked as a person who <laughs> wants you to buy his products. The good The good news is that decks of cards are cheap. That's pretty true. You you almost can't avoid them. Oh, and you can use the plastic ones that you didn't like for poker, or you can use your uh, Hannah Montana the set. The plastic or, ones would be much harder to destroy. You'd have to, like, melt, melt them. You, don't, you can just throw them in the tree. You don't have to destroy them. Fire! Fire! <laughs> Great. So I, I, would, I would suggest not setting fire to the plastic ones. I, I got to believe the chemical fire is, is, not, is not, a great, not a great idea. But uh, I think that about does it for our show. You know, it's, it's why I enjoy talking with you guys so much about sort of, like, these random topics, actually, is because this is something that, you know... I just, a lot of times I'm just taking for granted, you know, the component quality. It's just sort of this, you know, bullet point on a box, but it's not something that I usually think about as something that can actually have such a, you know, sort of deep impact on, uh, you know, my enjoyment of the game. Yeah. I mean, I think production values have a huge impact in any kind of game, whether it's uh, a card game when you're playing with nice cards or whether it's, you know, particle effects in terms of Solar Empire. I think it makes a difference. All right. Well, thank you to uh, both so much for you know putting this episode together, and for, to uh, Julian for hosting us this weekend, and to Michael Hermes for producing this episode. Uh, we'll be na- back next week with well, who really knows <laughs> the, civil because, the civil war thing? No, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I swear to God, next week, next week. No, you have to do it because the movie Lincoln opens up next Ooh, week. Oh, there's our marketing. tie-in. There's our tie-in. Um, and by the way, you should you know you should look up Louis C.K. Saturday Night Live Lincoln. Trust me on that. (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh, Say goodnight, everybody. Goodnight, everybody. Goodnight.